All right, welcome back to Insights, uh, the podcast of Lead Admit. We are now in part two of our podcast with Carl Prince, one of our partners, and hope you got to listen to part one. Very uh, interesting experiences and and. Yeah, we were sort of all over the place, but talked about Thailand. We talked about Asia Pacific in general. We talked about work. We talked about life. We talked about culture. So very cool stuff. Now let's jump into the professional uh, aspect of things. And this is where you start to see that bridge between the two worlds, right? So we are Americans who have lived in Thailand for a long time. And I think that's so important for why we excel at what we do. and so your first experience with that, um, you know, this is before I, you know, convinced you to come work for us because you didn't need to work at the time. Uh, but you did start doing some some corporate training, right? You were helping people, t- again, tell their stories uh, to a different audience. What exactly were, were you doing? What I was doing was basically, okay, so let me, let me start with an example. So Dane, have you ever been to a conference here in Thailand? You know, you go in. Somebody introduces the Puyai who gets up from the couch, comes and stands in front of the podium and blah, blah, blahs for 30 minutes, right? Drones on, okay. people are falling asleep. You probably don't understand it because you don't know Thai, right? right. So right. obviously, so you've seen this probably a hundred times, I'm sure, right? It happens too much. Every, yeah. every single conference. Well, right. obviously that's wrong. So what the company I was doing, what we worked for is we wanted to help people not just restructure, right, their presentations into, you know, better presentations or better pitches or whatever, but we wanted to help them with tricks to engage their audience a little bit better, which is precisely what we do in group interview class and, you know, throughout our consultations, right? So, I mean, it's things like body language, right? I mean, just basic things like that. Body language, as you know, in Thailand, you know, they just don't do it. In America, it's especially me. Look at me. I'm doing it right now, right? So using my hands is huge, right? Little things like that. So using body language, it not only, you know, helps you emphasize things, but it also helps you organize your thoughts. You know, it lets the audience know where you are in your delivery. You know, little things like that that puts the audience at ease. You know, using your voice, for example. So we would teach our clients how to, you know, moderate their voice with the flow of the action, you know, rising and falling. You know, you and Fernando were talking about this on the last, you know, podcast. It's tension and release, right? And you use your voice to help guide people through that story. You know, and another big one is the pause, right? We talk about the pause all the time. That's such an important part. You know, when you use that pause for dramatic purposes, you were signaling to the audience that the thing that's going to come out next is really, really important. So compare that to the guy who's just blah, blah, blah and droning on versus somebody who's really getting up, putting thought into what they're saying and using these little mechanisms, right? They can really pull the audience in and make them feel more engaged and make them believe in what you're saying. So essentially, that's what we were doing. We were just helping them change their approach from that straightforward, you know, sort of just monotone delivery into something that was a little bit more energetic, a little bit more engaging, and a little bit more exciting, right? So if you're trying to sell a product or whatever, there's got to be some excitement and some enthusiasm. Absolutely. You know, um, can I can I tell you a little story real quick that I think yeah, it's in really, really good here? You know, when I first moved here, you know, we talked about my Thai lesson. So that was one of the things that I thought was really, really important is to, to learn Thai. And my teacher one day pulled me aside after class. You know, she said, Carl, I need to talk to you for a moment. I was like, oh, my, what have I done? You know, it's 
Right. <laughs> this is a Thai class that I'm paying for. Yeah. She told me, she said, Carl, you know, you scare Thai people. And I'm like, what? You know, you scare Thai people. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, you're big. Yep. You speak, you speak <laughs> I'm 185 centimeters, I think. Is right. that, that big? Well, I'm a head yeah. taller than everybody else in the BTS. So, yes, I can tell you. <laughs> so she said, you're big. You know, you talk very loudly and you use your hands. You know, she said, you scare Thai people. You need to make yourself smaller. You need to, to be smaller. And I was like, oh, my God, nobody in my life has ever told me to be smaller. Right. Right. You know, it's always be bigger, differentiate yourself, you know, stand up. You know, And that's kind of one of the cultural characteristics that we have in Thailand that I think my 12 years here, you know, helps me with because I understand now I have a really good sense now of, of the cultural characteristics of Thais that can sometimes be limitations, you know, when they're speaking to an, an American adcom or a British adcom or whatever. You know, as you know, in Thailand, they're taught from from the very beginning, you know, blend in, you know, don't make waves, speak softly, you know, sit in the back of the room, don't ask questions. Right. And in America, it's completely different, right? We're told, you know, make waves, stand up, toot your horn, pat yourself on the back, you know, make yourself heard. You can be president of the United States one day. You know, we're told <laughs> right. these things from the very, very beginning. So it really comes down to, uh, you know, humility, right, versus self-promotion. So uh, self-promotion or bragging, right, is frowned upon right. here in Thailand. But we as consultants, you know, it's our job to help them overcome that fear of bragging or self-promotion because if they're not tooting their own horn, if they're not owning their accomplishments and their achievements, you know, if they're not the center of their own story, they're mm. not going to get into B-School, right? Blending right. in does not work when you want to go to B-School. So, you know, that's our job as consultants to help them recognize that, you know, that's not going to cut it. You know, we can help you be confident and sell yourself and toot your own horn and put yourself in the center of your story to great effect. So I think those are some of the challenges, you know, that we have to overcome, you know, as consultants, both when I was doing this previously with corporations and now with people going to, uh, you know, B-School in the United States and in Europe. So right. those are some of the things that I've learned, you know, in my 12 years here, you know, overcoming these cultural characteristics that are so indicative for Thai people. And what I think is great about that is it also, because you know and respect Thai culture, it's not that you're trying to change them and turn them into Americans. That's not the goal, right? Uh, there is definitely a difference between confidence and arrogance. Uh, and we're not asking them to skew all the way into arrogance, right? Uh, there is a happy medium where they can be an assertive version of themselves. Um, and people always ask me, especially in group interview, you hear this question all the time, like, isn't that arrogant? If I say that, isn't that arrogant? And then I remind them, do you want to go to the top 10 schools in the world? Which, of course, all of our clients do. Um, and they say yes. And I was like, that's already arrogant. <laughs> like, it's if you want to say Harvard's going to let in 800 people, Stanford's going to let in 400. You're literally saying I'm one of the 800 best people on the planet for this spot. Um, it is by nature arrogant to say I belong there. And so you got to follow it up. You got to own it to a large degree. And you have to be able to say I do belong there. And these are the reasons why. 
But of course, that doesn't have to skew all the way into arrogance where you give nobody else credit and you don't let people talk. A Wharton interview, I think, is a great example um, because people are really worried about the group interview because they think, wow, there were some really loud people in there. Um, and I say, don't worry about that guy. That guy's not getting in. <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't like that guy. You didn't like him. Neither did they. Um, but the three, the, you know, the meek people that are super quiet, they're not getting in either. There is a way to be an alpha minus or a beta and still be productive in that environment. And of course, you can do it privately as well. Um, and so I think it's, I think the fact that we know and respect their their culture and their personalities, we get to know people really well. We don't ghostwrite. We, we don't just edit some essays and send them out. We get to know our clients really well for, for months, if not years, especially with scholars. Um, and so by getting to know them, we're able to find that happy medium and make sure that, as you pointed out, they take ownership of their achievements, but not uh, by eliminating the role that, that anybody else played. It, I always tell people it's better to own something small than be a small part of something big. Uh, so you can just own your role own your actions. Um, and that's not arrogant. And you're not saying I ran the whole thing, which isn't realistic for a 25, 26 year old anyway. So uh, it, there really is a balance there. Uh, but like you said, a lot about it, a lot of it is delivery. Uh, and in Thai, that's one of the reasons I've struggled with Thai is I do uh, emphasize words and have intonations and, and things of that nature. You can't do that with Thai. If you change your tone, you change the word right? <laughs> the same word say, said eight different ways means something completely different. But in English, it just means that you're, you're hitting that word for a specific purpose. You have a dropping tone when you're finishing something, a rising tone when something is on its way. And where that's the kind of thing that we're teaching them. That's why it takes 30 hours of group interview. People, I think, are often shocked. Why 30 hours? And it's because this is hard. If you want to do it right, this is hard. You're not going to just have a couple of mocks, right? You don't just go practice something when you haven't learned something. It's the equivalent of uh, never going to the driving range for golf and you're expected to just walk out and play for an hour or two and be great. It does not work that way. Uh, you have to learn the rules of interview before you can execute. So 30 hours of group plus the practice they do on their own plus six hours of private. Uh, and, and it takes all of that uh, to really get good at the ability to tell these stories in a dynamic environment. You know, you're talking about giving speeches where they already have the, uh, the focus of the audience. They have the attention. They're the ones standing up there with a microphone. People by nature uh, are already giving them the floor and, and paying attention. That's not going to happen in an interview. It's easy to get lost. Even a, in a one-on-one, -on -one, you can get lost. And then definitely in the group interview of Wharton, uh, very easy to, to disappear as well. So it just takes a ton of time to learn those kinds of things. And of course, you teach group interview. But I think uh, another component, as long as we're talking about verbal, uh, this is another thing that we're seeing uh, in the industry change a lot and become increasingly common, increasingly important. And this is something you personally teach for us. But that's video essays. Um, and granted, those take different forms and there are different types, but they want to meet you now. You know, they're not happy just reading an essay. This is not just an essay writing contest. This is not. It's why we don't do a la carte. OK, let's just edit an essay. And that's the end. If you don't do everything <laughs> else right, 
you know, interview, short answer, recommendations, uh, all these other components, resume, if you don't have the whole package, you're not going to be successful. So we will not do just essays because it's not an essay writing contest. Also, we don't write essays for people because that's one, it's unethical, but two, it's impractical. Uh, again, we don't want them all to sound like us. We want them to sound like the best version of themselves. Now, an essay, you have months to work on and to polish and to hone. Uh, group interview, they're telling their own stories. Uh, we teach them how to adapt to these different types of questions. Uh, video essays are the most terrifying version of all of that. You know, you got 15 seconds to think. You have no idea what the question's going to be. Um, so can you talk to us about uh, teaching the the uh, the video essay classes, you know, when it comes time for round one or round two, I think we do it uh, twice a week. Uh, it's several hours. It's a bunch of people in there. But uh, and they are, of course, we are practicing for these different types. Uh, and maybe you can walk us through the different types for the different schools. But what is video essay class like? And, and what are you focused on teaching them? Very good question. I'm glad we're talking about this topic because, as you know, it is becoming more and more common and it's also becoming a much more critical part of the essay, right? So at least each round or each year, there's a new school introducing a new video uh, component to their application. So really great that we're talking about this. So, yeah, so basically in these interview classes, what we're doing is we're teaching strategy. And as our clients know, there will never be a time in any part of the process where they will be asked a question where there is not a strategy to answer that question, right? And that same holds true for video classes as well. They might not know what the question is or is going to be, but they still have a strategy where when they, when they have that 30 seconds or 60 seconds or whatever to construct their answer, they're putting it all into that little formula that they've been working on, and then they can deliver their answer when that green light goes on and they've got their 90 seconds or 60 seconds or whatever. So basically, that's what we do. Yes, we, we start off very easy. We do icebreaker type questions. You know, as you know, Dane, back in the old days when Kellogg was the only one doing this, that's all they were doing was icebreaking questions. And back then, it was basically they were verifying your identity, checking your fluency in English you know, to make sure that you communicate. That was really basically it. It wasn't an extension of the application like it is now. But we've turned a corner. So these are becoming much, much more important. So we start there with video, excuse me, with um, with icebreakers just to get people warmed up to break the ice, obviously, because they can get those also in a regular interview, icebreaking questions. Right. And then we move on to more in-depth type of questions and strategies, you know, how they answer them. And generally speaking, all of the video essays, you know, they fall into to a couple of different categories. There's behavioral type questions, and then there's always usually a goals type question. And, you know, just to kind of break them down, so there's three, generally three different types of video essays, okay? So the first one, let's call the Kellogg style, okay? Because mm -hmm. they were the originators, and theirs is actually the one that we like the most, because we know all three questions in advance. In theory, yeah, actually, right. it's there. You can go to the website right now and start working on those three questions. Now, the downside to that is, because you know what they are, they have to be perfect. They have to be polished. They have to be structured and they have to come in on time. If they don't, you're signaling to the school that you don't really care about Kellogg and that's the quickest way to get yourself disqualified. Why bother with the rest of your application 
if you don't care to put in the time to get these video essays done properly. So, so it's great that you have all the time in the world, you know, starting today to get those video essays down. And of course, your consultant, you know, helps you with the strategy, helps you rehearse if needed, you know, whatever to make those perfect and polished and delivered on time. The second type I call the Yale method because these are completely random, just like Yale does, right? So these are actually very nerve wracking, right? I even get nervous when I think about it. It's like, oh my God, what possibly could they ask? But again, they're behavioral type questions. A time when you did this, a time when you did that showed leadership, you know, you faced a challenge or whatever. So they're, they're behavioral type questions. Now, the good news here is you do have some time. Kellogg, you do as well. They give you, you know, 60 seconds to prepare your answer. Then the green light goes on. You have 60 to 90 seconds to give your response. Um, in these interviews, and you'll see it all over the websites of these schools, you know, they're much more forgiving, right? They understand that you have not been giving these in advance. You are going to mess up. It's very rare that somebody can come along and just nail these interviews with Yale or these or, or these similar types of interviews because they simply don't know what it is. So, you know, it's it's okay to go a little bit long. It's okay if you stutter or you might get disorganized a little bit. It's not the end of the world. You know, the school recognizes that. They recognize that you're not going to be perfect or cool as a cucumber, and they take that into consideration. But again, if you follow our strategies, it's not that difficult. You know, that takes a little bit of the pressure off. You know you've got a formula, a successful formula that's going to work whenever you get that question. That takes a little bit of the pressure off so you can breathe a little, more, a little bit more easily. And then when it's time you get the question, you know, you're, you've got your 60 seconds to prepare. You can make some notes and then you're ready to go. And then the third topic called the LBS style, because that's kind of a hybrid, right? So one of the questions you're going to know, that's usually a goals question, you know, why LBS, you know, how, how can this help you with your goals or whatever? And then there's a behavioral question that you don't know. It's very random. So that's kind of a hybrid model. So you know you're going to get probably something about the goals or school fit. You know, why do you choose that school or why do you, yeah, why are you choosing LBS um, but also something, a behavioral question that you don't know what it's going to be. So that one's a little bit better. Um, yeah, but definitely the the Yale model, when you don't know anything, that's definitely, definitely nerve wracking. And, and this year, I think the biggest change this year, if I can just continue for a moment, you know, last year it was Booth. Booth added something last year. This right. year, UT McCombs was the school to add something. So in the past, they did two written essays. And then the third essay, you could either record as a, as a statement, a video statement, or do it in writing, 250 words, I think, or a minute video essay. This time, it's only going to be one written essay, and they're doing seven, <laughs> seven video questions, right, where you do not know what the questions are going to be in advance. Right. So that was basically torture. But again, <laughs> if you follow the strategies and you stay calm, you know, you'll be able to do it. And you know that, you know, you can answer with with some of your cores because you've only got that one essay. So, right. you know, we can help you with those seven questions and the strategies to answer those seven questions. So that's actually a much bigger part of the actual interview as opposed to just a, a component that's separate. So, no, and I think that's uh, really important. I mean, that, all of those categories are great. That's a fantastic explanation for people listening. And, and of course, you're hitting a lot of schools that everybody's going to apply to, right? Kellogg's uh, ultra popular, uh, you know, traditionally considered number five. LBS, I consider equal to it. So it's the European version of Kellogg. Um, so, you know, top five schools um, and then Yale is a top 10. 
and then Macomb's number 15, number 16. Uh, to jump over, there's also BU, which is really popular uh, for ties, great tie network, great school in Boston. Um, but they give you a choice of written essays or verbal, and just the choice you make tells them a lot about you, right? Are you more comfortable writing or because you want help? Um, or can you verbally deliver? Um, and for a foreign applicant to, to choose to do the verbal, uh, pretty impressive just by choice. Um, and then, of course, the ability to do it well is, is vital. But I think the thing that listeners really want to take away from this is the expectations change based on how much preparation time and information they give you. Right. Mm -hmm. So the expectations for Kellogg have changed a lot over the years. It used to be icebreakers. You didn't know any of the questions. Then they would tell you one question. Um, then they would tell you, man, I'll go all the way back to the first time it, it, that it existed. You used to be able to do the video before you submitted the application. So you could sign up, uh, do the video. And if you didn't do well, <laughs> you could start a new application. Um, they very quickly picked up on that and got rid of that. But I remember the first year. Um, and so then it changed. And, you know, maybe it was one question icebreaker. Um, and then they started adding more. And then they were like, wow, I'm tired of looking at terrible videos. So let's tell them one of the questions. All right, fine. Let's tell them two of the questions. And now it's all right. Here's all three questions. Just don't be terrible. Right. But the expectations are much higher because you do have time to prepare your response. So they expect you to really be able to deliver. It's more like a TED talk than a video essay, especially compared to Yale's icebreaker, like you said. Um, if you can crush Yale, that's fantastic. But the expectation is not the same, right? Um, the same goes for LBS. Just because of the two different questions, they there can be a, a discrepancy in the performance because one of them is, is more prepared and one of them is, uh, you know, just in the moment. Uh, so I think it's important to understand that video essay performances, the, the expectations, the demands of those performances change based off of how much information you're given ahead of time. And then, of course, you mentioned the fact that Booth added one. What they added was the MIT version, which is pre-recorded which is infinitely easier, uh, no cuts. So if you go back, MIT used to be able to do cuts and we'd, we'd you know, throw in some slides and, and stuff like that to kind of uh, clip together the best parts of somebody's performance. Uh, they got tired of that. So a few years ago, they changed it. You couldn't have any editing. Uh, so now it's, it's what we call a single take. Uh, but a single take can still have a lot of tries. Right. So that's what we do um, is not only help them prepare the material that we want to talk about, because it's a complement to the application. Uh, as you're pointing out, if it's if it's if there's only one written essay and seven video essays, you better talk about your core and your content in there. Um, if it's LBS and you have seven written essays already, then, of course, the videos need to be about something else entirely. Um, for MIT, it's only a 300 word cover letter. Uh, the optional essay does not get to get used very often. It, of course, depends on whether they use the word extenuating circumstances. And if they do, then you can only use that for negativity. Um, but yeah, it's just a resume. It's only one rec. I mean, MIT is tough because of its brevity. So you really need to take uh, advantage of that video, but you can record it 100 times and send in the best version. Uh, and you need to, 
because they know you can, so they expect you to. If you just did one take and sent it in, uh, they're going to think that's your best version, that that was your hundredth try when in actuality it was your first try. Uh, Booth implemented without warning, um, and this is why this is another reason why we do all-inclusive. Things change. Things change in the middle of the application cycle, and we need to be all in, and the clients need to be all in. Uh, but Booth, yeah, they added a pre-interview video essay. Um, there are pre-interview essays. MIT actually has one. Um, so when you get invited to interview, there's another uh, essay question. For Booth, there's a now uh, a, a video uh, question before the interview, once you get to that next stage. For Harvard, there's a 24-hour essay, written essay that you have to do after the interview. Um, we do all of those things, no cost added, which other companies will charge like 50,000 baht or something for some extra thing, but we don't consider it extra. It's all part of the same process. It's all part of the application. And, and we have to do it that way because you've got to be all in. As applicants, I need somebody that's all into this process and wants to do everything and wants to do well. People never miss group interview. You hear 30 hours and you're like, oh, I bet they miss a few classes. They do not. <laughs> like nobody misses. Um, they show up for every opportunity to improve. And that's because we choose the kind of, we get, uh, we don't market, we don't advertise. So we get to work with whomever we want. Uh, we are always at capacity. So we do get to be selective about who we work with. And we want people that want to try, that, that want to work hard, that want to put in the time and the effort. Uh, and so they do that. And video essays are a great example of where you really have to do that and it shows, it shows in your performance uh, how much you prepared, whether that's Kellogg or Yale or LBS or now UT or Babson or whomever, right? Um, or for MS programs, we do a lot of data science. We do business analytics. They have a lot of video essays. In fact, they have more video essays than MBA, which I think surprises a lot of people. But video essays are just a part of graduate admissions now. Um, and they could be a case study for, for data science. They're often a case study. They're hard. Um, and so a lot of people will think, oh, it's a technical program. I, I don't need consulting. Uh, one, I think you do. Uh, everybody can use help, obviously great help. You want the best of the best. Um, there is definitely a difference between a great consultant. I, I always tell people you're better with you're better off with great friends than a bad consultant. So not to say you have to have a consultant. Um, you do have to have support. You need great people surrounding you that are supporting you and, and trying to help you get better. But yeah, data science is, those are tough video essays. Uh, business analytics, very tough video essays. The expectations are high. Um, and then there's video interviews, literal video interviews. It's a whole other animal. But after you're chosen to interview, then they'll have you sign in. There's a list of questions. They're often behavioral. But yeah, the ability to, to tell stories effective verbally is increasingly important. Um, and so, yeah, with Fernando, uh, we were talking a lot about the written essays. Uh, they do remain really important, of course, uh, but they have to uh, translate to verbal. You know, the same stories have to translate to verbal um, as well as your B stories and, and, and other components. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you teach it uh, for one, because, yeah, you're right. It could be very stressful. Uh, it is tough to watch people struggle and they always struggle. Uh, but it's also really rewarding to watch the first day versus the last, 
right? That's always fun. Um, and group interview, watching everybody crush it on that final day is just oh, it's so rewarding to see that change and rewarding in a way of fixing people's essays. Great. It's an awesome essay, but we're all professionals. Of course, their essay is going to be perfect because we have full control. But coaching them and teaching them to do it themselves, really, really exciting. And I'm sure it was the same when you were doing corporate training and watching your, um, you know, your clients get up there and give a great speech and have people sit up in their chairs and pay attention or lean forward. You, could, you were talking about the importance of body language in the speaker. You can see it in the listener as well, uh, which is always fun. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, that's definitely something uh that I know you enjoy is watching these people evolve. You know, one of our candidates that really struggled with speaking and was really quiet last year, um, actually two people come to mind. One was really quiet, investment banker, ended up at Booth. Uh, but another one was a, a scholar, a government scholar actually, really quiet, really meek, definitely needed. Uh, you know, she went to school in some village of, I think she lived in a village of, of 100 people and had to travel to go to primary school and things like that. So she was definitely not versed in uh, this Western culture. She ended up getting into MIT, you know, which means not only did she have to do the video essay, which she did, but she had to interview, traditionally it's with the Adcom that used to be Rod Garcia, now it's Don Levinson. Last year, everybody got to interview. So for MIT, it was really tough last year because you didn't know who your interviewer would be. But regardless, to watch her go from, you know, really scared to talk in general. And I mean, originally, she was just hoping for uh, 15 through 35 rankings. Um, but through the process, got good enough. Uh, and again, MIT has very little written material. So that's mostly verbal, and she was still able to to get into MIT. That was that was an extraordinary achievement. That was one of your clients, and I know you guys got really close. So, um, so maybe can you tell us what are some of the pitfalls that you see early on, class day number one, and then uh, what is it that makes somebody better? I know that's such such an abstraction. Is it? a stronger voice? Is it uh, the no pauses? Is it active voice? Is it taking ownership? Is it the for example, because such as like, how did they, what is the uh, trajectory, I guess, is, is my question of day one to final day of video essay prep? Oh, that's a great question. I think, you know, the, the first day is always very nervous, right? People come in, they don't know what to expect. They're very hesitant. They pause. You know, they don't know how to get through their entire story. You know, let's face it, it's not very colorful. It's not very engaging. So to see them go from that point, you know, and each week make little improvements. You know, and one of the, the big breakthroughs I like is that point when they finally realize that they're in a safe space, right? Mm. You know, especially now we're doing this on Zoom, right? So it's a little bit harder to engage with each other, but they, they, it does happen. It takes a little bit longer than if you're in the same room together. But there comes that time when they start to make a connection with one another. So they're not just another face on a screen. They're actually developing these bonds, right? We, we call this their very first cohort, right? Yep. So they're going through, they're learning about each other, and they're realizing that it's becoming a safe place. And they can experiment and they can take risks, you know, and we we teach them if one of their cohorts, you know, says something that's really good or uses a formula that's really good, 
steal that from them. So right. Jane, when you ask the question the next time around, they can take that and use it themselves, right? Because they're never going to have the same interviewer. They're never going to have right. the same, you know, everything is going to be completely different. But it's great to see them learn from each other, right? Because I guarantee you, somebody's going to steal back from the person who just stole original, right? right? Yeah, so exactly. It all works out. You know, they're learning from each other. They're learning to trust each other. They're learning to put themselves out there, you know, and, and make mistakes, right? So I guess that's the part that's most rewarding for me because by the time it's over, so what do we do, 12 weeks, 13, 12 weeks? Yeah. yeah. So by the time yeah. that 12 weeks is over, you know, they're, they're getting along well, they're laughing with each other, you know, in the times when I'm leading the class, I like it, you know, if we're working on storytelling or whatever, I love it to have one of the, one of the other uh, participants in the room be the one to do the critique. You know, what did you see? What would you have done differently? I love yeah. to do that because that builds trust and also respect for each of those as well. So, you know, it's this trajectory of them learning to trust each other, learning to build on that trust and, and being uh, willing to take more risks. And I think that's probably key. You know, if you don't take risks, you don't grow. So you've got to really put yourself out there and be prepared, you know, to, 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 to make mistakes and do something wrong because that is going to, you know, help you to grow. If you don't take risks, you won't grow. So that's kind of what I like to see, you know, in the classes. It's it's a slow process, but it always works out perfectly, right? Where they, they are, they're just one big happy family when it's all said and done. So I think that's the part of the process that I like the most. I, I would agree completely. I love seeing that. I love group interview. It remains my favorite part of the whole process. Uh, I mean, I love everything about what we do, which is why I still do it. Uh, you know, as the CEO, I'm still very involved in everything because I love it. Uh, like it's and obviously you're a partner, you know, you could farm this stuff out. But as a company, we choose not to do that. We choose not to scale because this is how many clients we can do perfectly. And it allows us to do something we love uh, and to make sure that it's perfect. And we're not just handing it off to some new person. So, I mean, I, nobody works for us that I haven't known for at least a decade. I mean, it takes a lot for me to trust somebody with a client. Um, but what you're describing, I think, is also important because there's two components of the contract, actually, um, that are really important. Um, and one is that uh, there's a non-disclosure agreement. So they agree not to share this information and that helps them become comfortable with their cohort. Uh, and so that's really, really important. Um, and the other is they're not allowed to lie. So they know that everybody is working and doing their best with the truth. And so these components are something we build from the very beginning. And that's why they get comfortable with their, their cohort. Um, it's why, and even beyond their cohort, you know, we had the going away party uh, where you got to see everybody and how close they get uh, over the time that we work together. Um, and that's why people aren't embarrassed to work with us. You know, there's, uh, I definitely know consulting companies where they had to stagger meetings because nobody wanted to be seen in the waiting room. Like they were really embarrassed that they were working with a certain company or, or, or doing certain things. And that's because those companies or those uh, those people were were known for being unethical. And that's what they didn't want to be associated with. But everybody knows what we do and how we do it um, and because we do all these scholarship programs. You know, like people are really comfortable with us because they know that we don't lie. Um, and we just coach people to be at their best. We don't write essays for people. We edit them uh, 
to to be their best. We coach them, we give them strategies. So all the stuff that I talked about with Fernando and that you and I are discussing, but there, it's a really special opportunity. Um, you know, having worked at other consulting firms over the last sixteen years, I've seen what it can be, and that very much influences what we are. You know, that's what's great about starting your own company. And I know you went through the same thing when you had your company in New York is you get to do it your way. You know, you take all those lessons you've learned, you pick what you consider the perfect model and you get to make it that. Um, And so that's that's what we do. Uh, And it is great to watch that trajectory, um, to watch that confidence build, those relationships build. uh, And they do really grow. Uh, in their verbal de- delivery, which is so, so, so difficult. So, well, that's a fantastic conversation. Thank you for that. Um, I think people are going to really enjoy that because the verbal part is one that they either don't know enough about. I think they're, they they haven't read all the way through. They don't expect it. Again, it's something that a lot of companies don't teach. Um, so a lot of people out there simply don't know that it's a, a part of the process. They definitely don't know how important it is uh, or how much effort they need to put in. Uh, and so I think this is a perfect time to kind of wrap part two, and then we'll jump into part three, where I'd like to, to get into more, uh, details of, you know, bridging that gap between Thai culture and U S culture. Um, as far as I know, we're the only foreign owned, uh, admissions consulting firm in Thailand. And that is important because we're not brand new. We didn't just show up and we're trying to be 100% American, um, but also we're not, uh, you know, really equally Thai uh, as, as the candidate. So uh, we are able to, to be somewhere in between, which is, is vital in this process. So we'll dive into that for part three. So listeners out there, uh, hope you enjoyed part two and everything we just discussed. But there's going to be more of these cultural elements uh, coming up in part three uh, with Carl Prince. Mm-hmm.